Hi, this is Howard Jacobson, and I am very excited to be talking on the phone today with Joseph Gonzalez, who is the staff dietitian for the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, PCRM. Welcome, Joseph. Hey, thanks for having me, Howard. Yeah, I was uh, taking notes on your bio, and there are so many things in there that I want to talk about, so we, we may be a little freewheeling. But um, just you know, the, some of the highlights is you uh, spearhead the, the Food for Life program, uh, which helps, uh, I guess, cancer survivors uh, yeah. eat better after a diagnosis and maybe after some treatment. Yeah, precisely. So it's our Food for Life program where we actually train instructors here in D.C. to go out and spread the message to advance cancer prevention and survival through plant-based nutrition. Cool. And so we'll, we'll, we'll get on to that. You also um, have been working with diabetes and diet in the Marshall Islands. You say, give us a, a sentence about that to whet our appetites. Sure. The Marshall Islands are in the middle of nowhere, literally. Um, it's about 2,000 miles southwest uh, of Hawaii, and I was out there with another great dietitian, Brenda Davis, uh, doing some work with the Marshallese people, focusing on, again, a plant-based diet for the reversal, in some cases, of their type 2 diabetes. Okay, so we're starting to see a uh, a theme around the type of diet that's that's helping uh, with different issues, and and also you work in the area of corporate wellness, just helping people in companies and organizations be healthier. And again, <laughs> what's the main uh, focus of of, uh, of that effort? The main focus is plant towered. It really it really is that simple. Uh, they're cheap, they're edible, and they're easy to prepare. So we get in there to corporations like Geico, which is a really well, it's a popular organization in the states here. And uh, we go in there and um, we teach people how to eat more plants and see how they how they do with their weight and their cholesterol and their blood sugars if they have diabetes. Okay, so so not to belittle the amount of time both you and I spent like studying and getting degrees, but but ultimately this is pretty simple stuff, isn't it? You know what, Howard? It, it's so simple. Um, you know, I've learned more out of school than I have in school, and that's not to downplay a good education and to become a dietitian or to get your PhD, but it's just to say that once you start working and, and you work with populations who are sick and you give them the simplest foods, you know, known to, to humankind, um, and they start to get better, you start scratching your head going, gosh, why aren't people catching on? But, um, you know, we, we both understand some of the barriers that we, that we face, and a lot of it comes down to money and politics, which is unfortunate, but, you know, um, that's going to be everywhere. Right. However, it is a very simple approach, and we're taking it, and we're seeing great strides in people's health. Great. So, so soon I want to get into those three initiatives and find out, you know, what, what, what is the easy part and what is the hard part. But first, I'd love to find out a little bit about your story. So you're a registered dietitian. Did you enter uh, dietetics uh, already knowing about plant-based nutrition? Like when, when did you first uh, come upon this idea of eating plants as the basis of a healthy lifestyle? Yeah, the, when I first came about eating plants and in a vegan diet for a healthy lifestyle, I was 16, so it was before my schooling, and I just couldn't believe it, Howard. I said, there's no way, you know, my parents would take care of me, the milk couldn't be harmful, and so I asked all the similar questions that other folks ask who are embarking on a, on a strict plant-based diet, 
And I started working with cancer patients at a place called Imagery Born, a cancer retreat center. And I started to see how this plant-based approach was working for these breast cancer patients who, you know, I, I think we all know somebody that has survived cancer or who is dealing with cancer. And they're just, you know, the battle is, is relentless. And there's some amazing people out there fighting this disease. And I decided from then on I would go into a career in nutrition because, you know, it really reached my heart and I felt like I could do a lot with it. So I did know what I wanted to do, and I was uh, following a plant-based diet before I went into nutrition school. So, so as a teenager, you were volunteering at this breast cancer place. Yeah, I was actually cooking. Yeah, I was cooking with uh, the food service director at this place, and uh, I was just helping them out. So I was an assistant chef for a little while in my in my high school days. Wow, that's. Uh... That's a very different story. Do you, do you remember how you first stumbled upon uh, a vegan diet as something you were uh, interested in? Yeah, it, I stumbled upon it uh, out of sheer doubt. I met a mutual friend, and I tried to give him a pack of peanut M&Ms. This is the true story. I have a pack of peanut M&Ms in my hand, and I have a new friend, and I said, all right, this is in Park City, Utah, where we have uh, something called the Alpine Slide. In the summertime, they, give a big, they have a slide up on the mountain, and you get in a sled, and you go down it. So I'm with my friend, my new friend, and I'm telling him that I love this candy, he should have it. And he tells me that he doesn't eat dairy products, and that just like hit a switch in my mind. And I almost got offended, Howard. He was he wouldn't take my candy, you know? And I felt that he should give me some respect. So I asked some questions and I followed the question with why and there was many whys that came about. And to be honest, you know, uh, the guy gave me some responses that I just couldn't register in my brain at the moment. And he was really nice about it, which is probably one of the reasons why I did change. So for all those of you out there who are trying to um, empower people and, and, and help change their lives, listen to them and try to meet them where they're at, because this guy really did that with me. So so my my really long story that I'll try to make short is, I started listening to what he had to say. He gave me books like, you know, Diet for New America and The Food Revolution, which is one that really rings true to my heart from, from John Robbins. And I started learning at an early age that how we prepare our food and the disconnect with our food, especially the animal products that we consume in our country, is so profound. And I wanted to make a difference. And I wanted to do something with my life because when you grow up in a small mountain town like I do, you have two things to do snowboard and maybe ski if you're sick of snowboarding <laughs> so so that's what i did i started working with this guy who was actually the nutrition director for a cancer retreat center and things just kind of spiraled into uh, a better life for me and i got an education i became a dietitian and now i'm doing what i love promoting plant-based nutrition at uh, a great organization the physicians committee for responsible medicine with dr neil barnard what a, what an awesome story so sh- shout out to uh, to m&m mars for inadvertently uh, changing, right? changing <laughs> the world i'm curious yeah. are you, are you still in touch with this friend I am. I definitely am. His name is Art Egertson, and he actually is the founder of ProBar. Um, my ah. father and him went into business, and they created ProBar. And now Art, Art, Art's a really good friend of mine, and he's on a mission to to uh, spread this message to a lot of folks. He now has, um, if I can plug one of his products, it's called um, Kate Farms Complete with a K. And what it is is an insure. Um, it's a mock insure. So if, if, if listeners don't know what insure is, I can't imagine they don't. It's everywhere. It's a Nestle product, which is full of uh, sugar and milk protein and vitamins. And what Art has created is a product that is um, pea protein, rice protein, and, you know, there is sugar in it, but it's not lactose sugar. There's no animal products. And what it can be, what it can serve as is a replacement to the Ensure product. And he's out there trying to promote his product 
and, and, and get this into hospitals so that doctors can actually promote something with good nutrition and not just a, a can of Ensure or a can of dietary supplementation that's full of glucose and milk protein, which most of them consist of. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. Um, and it, it, you know, it tells me that our, our playbook is really much simpler than we make it out to be in that, you know, I'm, I'm a marketer by trade. And so one of, one of the stories we learn is like how hard it was to market, uh, toothpaste before anyone mm-hmm. brushed their teeth. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you had to market an entirely new habit. And then as soon as someone came up with the first toothpaste, the second person just had to change the flavor. <laughs> and it, right. And so yeah. you know, I, I, I have a friend, uh, Mary Clifton and Tess Chalice, who are, uh, who are creating a program that's essentially Weight Watchers, except they use healthy food. <laughs> and, yeah, and get our, wasted, right? Yep, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And, and Art Eggertson is saying, hey, look, there's a, there's a proven market for Ensure. Let me just make it better. <laughs> right. And I wonder how many other, you know, plant-based initiatives can we, can we find? And there's already markets for people who just want something better and healthier than the way already, what they already have. And we don't have to be so creative about it. This is true. So, yeah, so the cool. work is so, done. Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, so Art knows, uh, the effect he had on your career trajectory, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he does. I don't think he saw it in that light when I first presented him with the first M&M, but, uh, it, it definitely has been an interesting relationship and it's been, you know, 13, 14 years since that day. So I owe him my life. So whatever I can do for him, um, I'm happy to. That's awesome. Um, so, um, you know, not, not to, uh, to stir up a hornet's nest, but my understanding of a, a dietitian's education is that it's not necessarily plant-friendly. Did, did you experience any or some of that? I'm going to disagree a little bit. I think that there's so many different diets that are, you know, that exist. Um, and, you know, when dietitians go through schooling, it, you're right, it's not necessarily a plant-based focus because you have to cover so much material. But I will say that the school I went to was a school referred to by Brenda Davis and one that I, you know, really appreciate, and that's Bastyr University, uh. and they teach naturopathic medicine. So it's not fair for, to be talking to me about this because I went to a school that had a vegetarian cafeteria that taught a whole food cooking class that integrated anatomy and physiology and biochemistry with the whole food plant-based cooking class. So. We really focused on on you know whole foods at Bastyr, and I got a better education that way. Um, standard you know schooling and education they don't really take that focus, but they do discuss vegetarian diets. They do discuss you know whole foods, um, um, complementary and alternative um, medicine, which is known as CAM. So it's out there, but I, I agree with you that it is very little. Okay. Well, I'm I'm, ha- I'm happy to be contradicted at all whenever I come up with one of my my, my Debbie Downer generalizations. So I I appreciate that. Um, so t- let's let's talk a little about the Marshall Islands. I heard Brenda Davis uh, talk about this at the North American Vegetarian S- Summerfest, um, and it was fascinating. I didn't get a chance to to meet with her uh, privately to ask more. So tell tell me uh, like. Let's, let's first let's just start with the background for people who don't know about kind of the health challenges of, of the residents of the Marshall Islands. Well, well, the background goes pretty pretty deep. Um, stop me if you think I'm getting off topic, but you know, back in World War II, um, we defeated the Japanese, the Battle of Kwajalein, and we took over their islands. 
And then we started to test nukes off of these islands because it was in the middle of nowhere. Well, what happened was radiation spread to some of the islands. And, and you see, nobody knows this stuff, Howard. Um, and then the radiation spread, and we had to get folks out of those areas, and we put them into the capital, which is now Majuro, and some other places. And so after, you know, in the 50s and 60s, um, these native folks, they, they stopped their, their native diets because, one, it's not really accessible, and, two, they're relying on the U.S. to give them food. So as you know, here in the States, we eat very poorly. We have canned meat like Spam. We have white rice, white flour, white sugar everywhere. And so the diet that has been adopted in the Marshall Islands for the Marshallese people is a westernized diet. And we're seeing diabetes rates so high, one out of two people over 35 is going to get diabetes in their lifetime. Now keep in mind, there's no dialysis on the island. There's no dialysis in the hospital. So unless you have money you, you know, to get to Hawaii for treatment, you're going to die of diabetes. And so the so what I, I'm getting at is there's a diabetes epidemic in the Marshall Islands, all right? And what Brenda Davis did and what her group did was they brought an intervention to the Marshall Islands where we taught the people how to eat a, a really simple plant-based diet, okay? Um, you know, high in, in carbohydrate, unrefined carbohydrate, like, you know, sweet potatoes and pandanas is a, is a kind of it's a, a staple fruit out there, um, grains like rice and lentils and barley. Um, well, not lentils, those aren't a grain, it's a legume. But as you can see, we promoted a plant-based diet for these folks who had diabetes, and right now some of her research is coming about, but we were really tackling diabetes head-on there and, and saw some great changes in a lot of these folks who were suffering. Wow. So, so I have to ask, since I, I have um, a master's in public health, and I went into that program... Um, quite naive thinking that well i you know i've got such a great education behind me i'm going to go into communities and they're just going to welcome me with open arms mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and i discovered that that was almost entirely wrong that that the folks in the communities you know especially impoverished communities neglected communities saw someone like me and were 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 completely non-trusting and suspicious and i'm wondering you know what what were the challenges in the Marshall Islands? Did, did 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 the islanders, you know, immediately take to this, or you know, what 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 had to be overcome to uh, to to get implementation? Mm. Well, you're at, you're asking the backstory for the backstory. I may be the wrong person to answer that question, but if I were to try, I would say that um, they were uh, they were pretty open to receive our our education, and it all started with their government. Um, it's a little different. It's a little different how it's set up in the Marshall Islands. But from what I understand, uh, the Department of Defense here actually gave a grant to a nonprofit called Canvasback Missions, who then went out and hired Brenda and other staff to go to the Marshall Islands and set up a little clinic. And so it was all. It, it was a little. It's, it's a little bit different as far as what you're referring to as you know. Are these people going to welcome you? It was kind of like, you know, they got permission, federal dollars to come do a study, and they were in communication with the governments of the Marshall Islands. So it was a little easier that way. But let me just say firsthand, because I was out there, that when I was around these folks, they are the nicest people I've ever met, and they really welcomed us with open arms. And especially, I think, because you have diabetes, and a lot of these folks die from diabetes, and they don't know that it's a disease. They wake up and they eat food. They think that if you just get calories 
you're going to be full, and that's that's all it's going to take. They don't they don't have the connection between diet and diabetes. So when we're out there educating them and they're going, oh, I kind of, I get this now. That's right. We haven't been eating the same food that we have for generation after generation. Something changed. What was it? It was the food. So they really did welcome us. And I would go back any day of the week. It's a beautiful place. I know they're suffering from some weather right now, but um, I think that they really opened their arms to us. Mm. And I'm I'm imagining that there was... It, it, you kindled a sense of sort of traditional pride that you know we we had this taken care of when we were on our own living our own our own way yeah, yeah. Uh, I think so um, I like to make the comparison to how we um, treat the Navajo nation now and you know it, it's it's not very fair and it's not just where we have these reservations for Native Americans but you know a lot of their diets are not native. They are full of junk, and a lot of it has to do with uh, U.S. commodities. So there was definitely a sense of pride in the Marshallese people to gain back control over their food and, and seeing them work together with grocers and trying to get these healthful foods. Because, you know, the Marshall Islands is in the middle of nowhere. There's coral reefs everywhere. There's not soil on the island, so it's hard to grow your own fruits and vegetables. Mm. So what they have to do is, you know, grow a lot of their vegetables on roofs, um, you know, work together to, to share produce, and they, they rely a lot on Im- imports. So, we, you know, once you teach them, you know, the right foods to import and getting them thinking about their traditional diets, it just did wonders for their health. Yeah. Can you tell me what, uh, what so far have you seen in terms of health improvement? In health improvement, while I was there, in the span of two days, I saw blood sugars drop from the 300s to closer to the 100s. Um, and then after the course of a couple of weeks, I've seen blood sugars come completely down into the normal ranges where folks were getting off of medications. I don't want to go as far as to say that this diet will reverse diabetes, but it can sure do a lot. And if you really, if you have diabetes and you're going to do this all the way, you could almost expect to see a reversal of diabetes. Uh-huh. And when you say reversal, you mean the, the the constantly spiking and falling blood sugar, or I, I assume you don't mean like some of the neuropathies from from long term. Like, I mean know. the constant spiking. We actually are doing a study on neuropathy right now. Uh, the results are are yet to be to be seen. But thank you for clarifying that, Howard. Uh, just as far as the blood sugar goes, and measuring what we call A1C, how much blood sugar is attached to your red blood cells. Uh-huh. And uh, that would be going down as well. And when you get off your medications too, so we're tracking all three of those parameters. All right, because I was listening to you know Dr. T. Colin Campbell was talking to a group of people um, about the way we throw around the word cure, and you know we all we yeah. all want a cure, but this is if if it's a condition where when you eat you know junk food you're you get diabetes, and when you stop eating junk food you stop getting diabetes. It's not really not it's accurate not or to, t- to say, well, you're cured, now you can go back to eating your junk food. Right. <laughs> yes, I, I agree with you 100%. So, yeah. So perhaps not a, yeah, so uh, again, a reversal and lowering of blood sugars and, and everything that deals with diabetes, like high blood pressure, um, high cholesterol levels. Um, this is the best thing I love about my job. The same diet that I prescribe works for everything. It works for cancer prevention. <laughs> It works for heart disease prevention. It works for diabetes prevention. It works to help shed a few pounds. So it makes my job a heck of a lot easier. 
Right. So I'm 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 curious also, you know, when I think of an island, I think of uh, big fish eating cultures. And were, was your was your work with Brenda um, purely vegan, or were people um, either encouraged or allowed to to fish for for some of their food? Yeah, good point. You know, the traditional diet did include fish, so uh, we didn't go out and promote fish. We didn't cook it in our classes, but we made we made them aware that if they're going to go back to their traditional way of eating, uh, fishing and fish might be included in their diet. Uh huh. So so that would be. Um, you know, a controversial subject. Um, however, a completely plant-based diet with fish once a month, um, you know, that's a heck of a lot better than a Western diet. Right. And I, I'm already thinking, you know, since I'm a gardener, I'm already thinking about ways to, to hack, Ooh, a a, hack, a, hack a coral reef to... Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, no, it just doesn't know, happen. They, what, the, what they need is a giant composting program of every bit of uh, produce that makes it in, every skin, every uh, peel. Ah. Now you're now you're talking, giving me ideas. Yeah, yeah. Compost and worms, and they can start. Uh, you know, yeah, one one of one true. of my favorite people is uh, Will Allen, who runs Growing Power in in Milwaukee, okay. which is another another type of food desert. And he he started out buying um, garbage trucks and and collecting scraps from everywhere and and building huge mounds of compost piles and then building uh, um, gardens and people on abandoned lots. Is that right? Yeah, hmm, that sounds fascinating. So that's the, great. I, I'm actually a gardener myself, Howard. I got I have a little plot here in D.C. Believe it or not, it's twenty by twenty, but I'm able to grow some watermelons and you know some cantaloupe and tomatoes. Uh, nice. That's basil. So that's uh, mel- melons are, uh, are are an act of hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And we're hoping now. Don't don't get me wrong, <laughs> but uh, but it's sure fun to do. Awesome. All right. So let's let's. Uh, segue off of the fact that that diet works for everything and tell me a little bit about the food for life program so the food for life program is formerly known as the cancer project where we train instructors they can be a typical you know layperson or they could be a dietitian or a nurse uh you know whoever and they come to dc and they train we, we train them like dr barnard gives a lecture i give a lecture we have a curriculum set up we have recipes that have been you know, all tried and true, and we teach them this information. The instructor goes back to their city, and they teach a class. And the class consists of a lecture by Dr. Barnard in a DVD format, and then they cook about three different recipes, and they're showing these uh, participants that come to the classes how to do it and, you know, what tastes good, and they're engaging them with the nutritional education side of things. So that's where we come in, where the dietitians, um, like Susan Levin, is is our director of nutrition here who is excellent and you know we we talk about the research that goes into you know why follow a plant-based diet what is it doing for cancer and so we hit four different topics we have one topic on cancer we have one topic on diabetes um, when i say topic i mean class series so there'll be you know seven classes geared towards that one you know topic and we also have workplace wellness, which I can talk about a little bit more when we discuss GEICO, our GEICO study. And then we have a kids class. So whether you're interested in, in helping children, uh, getting in there into the workplace, you want to help reverse diabetes, or you want to help prevent cancer, you know, that really speaks to anybody 
that's out there that wants to learn a thing or two about nutrition. Got it. So do most of the instructors go on to teach prevention, or do they deal with populations that are more motivated because they've already been diagnosed? Prevention. I make that very clear. We do not deal with diagnoses because, you know, a cancer diagnosis can be one of the most um, fearful and, um, you know, intimidating times of someone's life. So, and that's not for us to decide. We really work with doctors and with dietitians. We don't want to say that, you know, this is the only diet to follow and, and you have to eat this way and this is how you're going to cure your, your disease, that we would never go there. So strictly prevention and if somebody is in the survival phase of their cancer, which I hope they are, and um, it's in remission, their cancer, then they would be encouraged to come to a class. Because right now the literature states that the same diet for uh, cancer prevention should be followed for cancer survivors. Hmm. So I'm I'm curious. I get this question sometimes from 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 doubters, um, where you know if you look at let's say uh, diabetes, it's very clear the effects of a plant-based diet on diabetes. And, and Dr. Mm-hmm. Barnard has demonstrated in a book, and you guys have been following up and and, and proving it, you know beyond beyond doubt. There's plenty of evidence for reversing heart disease. Um, you know Dr. Mm-hmm. Esselstyn's work. Um, I'm unclear about the, 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 the research around cancer. Like, is there a study that you could, you know, we, we certainly have Dr. Campbell's laboratory work around with casein and rats, mm-hmm. and we have um, epidemiological studies from China and elsewhere around the world. Do you know of any clinical trials in which cancer was prevented or remissed or reversed? Um, through plant-based nutrition? They are lacking. There's one that comes to mind, and I can't even say, uh, I, don't, I don't know where the patients are now because it was only a one-year study, but this is Dr. Dean Ornish's work. He mentioned heart disease reversal, mm-hmm. and that's the same guy. You know, Dr. Dean Ornish was one of the first to publish the studies. I think other folks were doing the work he was doing before him, but he was the first to publish it in 1990. Um, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, and so he's doing work with men and looking at the risk of prostate cancer by putting men who have prostate cancer, but they're in this kind of waiting period. They call it watchful waiting, where they just kind of they watch a the the, the a, what they call a PSA, a prostate specific antigen, and if that number goes you know high or low, they they know what's going on. Uh, typically, it doesn't go down; it goes up. And so what Dr. Dean Ornish did was he took 100 men and he put 50 of them on a, on a low-fat vegan diet. And Dr. Ornish likes to emphasize um, the involvement of uh, meditation or, um, you know, stress reduction, whatever technique that you want to use. And he found that in the vegan group, the PSAs, again, the prostate-specific antigen, what they use to test if prostate cancer is progressing, actually went down in these patients overall and none of them had to get surgery but when you look at the other group the control group who didn't have any dietary changes who didn't you know have any type of stress reduction their PSA levels went up they do exactly what PSA's levels do and six out of 45 of them had to get surgery now this is only after a year so like I said in the beginning I don't know where the vegan participants are now but all we can say is that we see trends in the research. There's never going to be a, a perfect study. There's always going to be something that goes wrong with a research paper. Um, and cancer is so difficult, Howard, because it has such a, a long latency period that you don't know. You know, it, it's hard to know when that person, you know, first got the cancer and what they were eating when they got the cancer. And and we even know that there's some research in epigenetics 
that show that what our grandparents ate can affect our genes today, and that can affect our risk of cancer. So it's so complicated and confusing that that's why, you know, here at PCRM, we just say let's err on the side of caution. The best example I can give you is we know that dairy products can increase a man's risk of prostate cancer. Maybe not all the time, but it can increase the risk of prostate cancer. We also know that milk, and, and you're going to kill me for this, don't hang up on me, but milk in, in a lot of studies have shown to decrease the risk of colorectal cancer. <laughs> so as a man, you know, um, who's, who's considering, you know, what am I going to eat? You know, I, wanna, I do want to protect my colon. I don't want to get prostate cancer. What should I do about milk? So the answer is simple, Howard. All I need to do is, is look at what's in milk. Okay, there's protein in milk. There's calcium. There's, there's whatever. I'll just get that from a plant source. Because all of the research shows that the plant sources of calcium, the plant sources of protein, aren't increasing the risk of prostate cancer. And, and they are decreasing the risk of colorectal cancer. So with that said, I would err on the side of caution and say, let's ditch the dairy. Let's ditch the meat, especially the red and processed meat, because all the literature confirms that you know, red and processed meat are directly linked to colorectal cancer. So... I want to ditch those animal products. I want to bring in the plants. I want to make sure the diet's well-rounded and I get my B12 and I get enough vitamin D and all these other micronutrients. And then I think that's the best, that's the best solution that, you know, I can come up with or rather PCRM has come up with. Right. So it seems like you can, you can either, um, you know, invest in a time machine and, and ch- change your grandparents' eating habits or you can just eat plants. And, yeah, and, and again, it's following, it's following the trend. So, you know, you ask about individual studies on cancer. Um, not many exist. I gave the Ornish example because that's one I know of off the top of my head. Um, but we do need more research. I am always for more research. But, you know, typically scientists don't like to give recommendations on diet until they have every single piece of the puzzle solved. And that's never going to happen. Right. I hate to be optimistic, but it's, it's just not. Right on, and you know the the sad thing is that until until you have that, you know, complete airtight, hundred percent gold standard proof, the default is well, just keep eating what you're eating because we we don't know any better. Yeah, yeah, and and that does that does that does nothing for the people suffering today, and it breaks my heart. Um, you know, I, I was just offered to give a lecture at Susan, uh, Susan Coleman Foundation. And as, if you know Coleman, she's responsible, they're responsible for the pink ribbon and, yep. you know, getting the word out there. I am all for that. Howard, I really am. But let me tell you, they told me that I, they didn't want to, um, listen to my presentation because I was a little too adamant about removing animal products from the diet. And I just went, gosh, here you have all these, these thousands of women suffering from breast cancer that need this message, that want this message, and you're worried that I'm going to say, you know, you know, maybe try to consume less animal products and more plants? I mean, come on. You know, we're at this huge disconnect, and if we're really trying to find a cure for cancer, we really want to try to decrease the rates of cancer in our country, we've got to start opening our, our hearts and our minds and listening to, to experts around us. Right. Well, so that's they, my... Sorry, go ahead. That's my rant. That's my rant. I'm sorry. I'll let yeah. you speak. No, no. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm suspecting. I can't. I don't know this for sure. But in, in the research for Whole, looking at a lot of the nonprofits and advocacy groups, you know, corporate money seemed more important than scientific fact in determining their policies. So I don't know, you know, what animal product. Uh, 
you know, industries and producers are, are supporting Race for the Cure. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, clearly as we, as we work in large organizations that, that are sensitive to, to donor funding, that's a challenge. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> that exists and, and we have to deal with it. I'm actually more interested right now in, your reaction in, in, in the in the the global picture of your reaction to Art Eggerston refusing your M M&M, and M, which insulted <laughs> you, because you were offended because he wouldn't take your candy, which was a gesture of goodwill. And uh-huh. I think you know, for those of us who don't live in the Marshall Islands, who haven't had our entire civilization wrested out from under us within two generations, those of us who uh, are not beholden to big money, we can still be. <laughs> really persnickety when someone tells us that there might be something wrong with our diet. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, t- tell me a little bit about the work you're doing with, with employers and employees who, who aren't necessarily in crisis. And, and you come and you give them a lecture and you suggest that there might be a better way to eat. What do you, what do you see in those cases? Yeah, well, first off, I want to say food is the most personal you know, it's, it's just the most personal thing in anybody's life. You know, there's traditions based on it. The religion talks about it, um, how we were raised. So it, we do need to be sensitive about people's food choices. Um, so so we, we were in our, in our case when we went into the workplace setting. And at the beginning, we just asked GEICO, which, you know, they have a headquarters. I'm looking at them right now out of my window in Washington, D.C., and they have a lot of employees there, maybe 2,500 employees at this center. And we wanted to see if we got in touch with their HR, and we wanted to see if they wanted to do some sort of weight loss challenge. So that's how this begun. You know, if you want to convince anybody to, to change their diet, um, one of the biggest motivators that I've seen is, is weight. You know, we're at an obesity epidemic in our country, and um, there's a lot of stereotyping that goes on. Um, but a lot of folks do want to lose weight if they're a little heavier. And they can never figure out how or why. And probably because there's so much misinformation out there because everybody's trying to make a buck off of a book or, or whatever. But we went in there and we just gave them lectures. We told them, you know, hey, this is, this is what some of our research shows. Uh, you know, like you mentioned, epidemiology. Epidemiology shows us that if you look at, um, like the Seventh-day Adventist cohort or, or a European study, they, we see that a vegan diet has some of the lowest BMI out there. So they have some of the lowest weights. And we went in there and we taught these classes and it turned into a, a, a full-blown study. Um, we've actually had a few different papers published out of GEICO, out of the GEICO cohort, out of, out of the folks at GEICO. And so we went in there, again, with, with, with welcoming hands and just try to help people along. And this is the reason why so many people stay on the diet, Howard. And I got to tell you right now for all your viewers, it is no, there's no portion control. There's no calorie counting. You eat what you want until you're full and then you go home and you have a good day. And for some people, they just can't understand that concept of not counting calories because we've been so entrenched in, in counting our food and making sure it's low in fat or high in protein or whatever. We just said, go home and eat some pasta, have some crackers, have some fruit, have some vegetables, throw in some beans. And, and folks started to really take to this approach. And once they started losing weight, I mean, on average in our studies, people lose about a pound a week. And that's pretty significant, 52 pounds a year, that's great for a lot of people. And this is healthy weight loss. 
not just the quick weight loss where you're going to you know, lose a little bit and gain it back. This is sustainable weight loss for a long period of time. So I think once people identified you know, how much this plant-based diet could do for their health, they really took an approach to it. And I'm a pretty likable guy. So. <laughs> okay, so I get that. You're... you're, <laughs> you're uh... You know, you give these lectures, and I and I see you also do other things like grocery store tours, cooking demos, meal plans, and people get motivated. And yet, you're you're basically telling them a lot of them to stop eating a lot of their favorite foods. So, what happens when the motivation wears off? When when the Joseph Gonzalez charm is is mm-hmm. thin? When they're staring at the refrigerator at two in the morning, yeah. like what? What are some of the, the behavioral challenges that you've seen for people who want to do the right thing and find that they're, you know, they're failing? Right. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges that people face is, is you know, just their own social scene, their own family members. You know, if a family member is doing the diet with them, they're so much more likely to change and keep that change on full time. Uh, going to parties, social events, um, you know, people still want to eat some of their favorite foods, as as you as you mentioned. But it's it's interesting though. We found out that even if somebody had a favorite food of, I'm just going on a limb here and saying, you know, barbecue ribs. Um, we found that if that same person went vegan for the course of our study, which was like 22 weeks, and then they went back and they had that steak, or maybe they screwed up. Maybe they maybe they you know like goofed up in the study. And they, they had something with animal in it. It was one of their favorite foods. They find that the taste is different and they no longer like it in the same way. Um, so there's so many changes that go along. But again, back to the biggest challenge, the biggest barrier that they face is probably just their social setting and not being prepared when they're hungry um, and something's calling their name that, that could be of, of animal origin. Mm. So I'm very curious about the... Um the philosophy or the strategy, which sounds like you guys are, are kind of, you know, an all or nothing. Like you want to go vegan, go completely vegan, as opposed to, let's say, you know, go from 6% calories from whole food, whole plants to yeah. 20 or 30 yeah. or 50 or 70. Can you talk about that? About why you think it's important or why it's worked to go 100% for a period of well, time? Let me just say this. I'm just reporting on what we did in our studies. So when we designed this study, you know, in order to get approval, you obviously you have to send it to an institutional review board because you're you're testing on humans essentially. And so part of the study protocol is that you go vegan. And if you have diabetes, you want to keep keep the glycemic index, which is a measurement of how fast your blood sugar is going to raise after you eat a certain food. You want to keep that pretty low. So people knew what they were getting before coming in. It's not like they came to the first day of class and it was like, hey, Joe says you can't have any of your favorite animal foods anymore. No, they knew what they were getting before they came in. Um, I think that approach works really well. I, I think that people really, they knew what they were getting. Um, they knew some of the foods that they already liked because we, we talked about it in class. We went over foods that were vegetarian, foods they could find easy in the grocery store, you know, what to do when they're eating out. And the design was, was you know, phenomenal in my opinion and we saw good results. Now on the flip side, I think you make a good point. If we weren't designing a clinical study, or shoot, even if we were, I think that there's something to that where you know, if somebody's not ready to go all the way, you kind of say, all right, well here, you could add these foods to your diet you know, you could you could try the bean burrito instead of you know the the meat burrito, and and that could be a, a good thing too. But I have to say that 
in some of these studies that I look at, especially studies that are looking at, you know, women um, without breast cancer who are being tracked for for maybe eight years, and um, or or maybe women who are trying to survive, you know, breast cancer, and the study design is to put them on a low-fat diet. We find that they never meet that goal, and the ones that are trying to meet that goal do do better. But you know, you just think, okay, you have this big study design. And you're trying to get people to lose, um, to lower their fat intake. You know, if they really met their goals, if they really boost up the fiber and went down on the fat, I bet you we'd have better results. So that's the reason why we say go all the way is to get the biggest bang for your buck and have the best results. Mm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, just as a strategist, I'm real. I really struggle with this question because on the one hand. You know, with uh, working with uh, with Holvana down in, in North Carolina, we're putting people on 10-day jump starts where we're actually mm-hmm. p- providing two meals a day. You know, they're on their own for breakfast with with uh, strict oh, wow. instru- instructions, and we're finding people. You know, Im- imagine the sort of numbers that you get, and we're getting them. You know, people cholesterol is going for you know dropping 70 points in in 10 days and uh yeah you know there some people are losing 15 pounds the average is like five pounds um so you know and and there is something to be said for especially in our society really respecting a number when you get you know pricked and it gets mm-hmm. sent to a lab and it comes back. Like that's even better proof than like, yeah, I'm feeling better. I'm, you know, I have more energy. It's like an externalization that that people in, in our <laughs> yeah. society really can relate to. And at the same time, uh, another argument for all the way is that, as you said, taste buds change. Yeah. Uh, and yet, I was talking about this with uh, with Doug Lyle, who's one of the co-authors of The Pleasure Trap, who, who works mm-hmm. at, uh, at True North, where they, you know, detox people. And one of the things he was saying was that aside from, like, the physiology, psycho- psychologically, it's better to take people slow and give them small wins so they don't shoot higher than they can reach. So I'm, I'm really conflicted about... How to tell what's the, you know, is the best way to get someone to transition to, to go, uh, mm-hmm. cold tofu, I guess we would say, <laughs> or, or yeah. to, to make small, tiny changes. Yeah. I, you know, I, I would have two different approaches to this, to this discussion. The first one would be if you're, if you're thinking about a clinical study, you know, you, you do want to go all the way because the people know what they're getting into. They're ready for this. They've read the protocol. They know what's expected of them, and they come in, and they go all the way. The second approach is um, kind of taking it easy and transitioning. Now, I'm not, you know, this is just my personal take, and the way that I've, you know, li- lived my life and the way that I've interacted with family members and friends, the the slow approach really works. And I know it works because I have two vegetarian parents, which they're probably 99% vegan. I got a vegan cousin. I have other uh, vegan family members and vegetarian family members. I have folks, um, you know, family family members who will contact me, you know, all the time saying, hey, you know, I just had this or, hey, I just included that meal into my diet. So, you know, and I never once said anything to anybody about this. You know, my parents decided to go and do this on their own. Um, you know, back in my, my days of, of 16, 17, 18 years old, trying to trying to defend myself every time somebody put me down for, for eating a, a, a vegan diet, um, 
I would I would get a little confrontational and I would try to point to a study and I would try to tell my you know a 19 year old doesn't really worry about heart disease so when you when you threaten your friend that he's going to die of a heart attack from that bacon cheeseburger it's really not the best approach and I found that I really turned people off of this way of eating from being so confrontational so now that I'm much older and wise yeah right um, now that I've had a little more experience rather. I really like your approach, and that's meeting people where they're at and having them feel a sense of empowerment of what they're eating. Because no one's gonna, nobody likes change. You know, I didn't like change when I first was told that 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 milk uh, peanut M and M was bad for me. I didn't change the next day. What I did was I started drinking soy milk and 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 trying different soy milks, and that's all I did for the first couple weeks. And I noticed an improvement with my with my allergies. And I said, well, there's something here. Let me keep pushing this. You know, Art never told me to go vegan. He just he just gave me some information. So I, I you know, on a personal standpoint, away from PCRM's um, clinical research, I think that that is a good approach. And I've seen it work in my own environment. Awesome. So um, can you talk a little bit about the effect, like, uh, the effect of different interventions on on people's uh, ability to 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 maintain the vegan diet. Let's like is it is it more? Do you find that people need more ability or more motivation? Does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's both. Um, you know, they, they need motive. They need motivation. They need ability. Um, first, I'm going to say ability because if you don't have any place to go to get a get a you know uh, a veggie burger or a taco or you know whatever, you're just not going to be able to follow the diet. If you don't do a little bit of planning and you don't have resources available, it's just not going to work. Um, motivation is a huge one. Like I said, think about it. If if you're you know you're let's say you're overweight and you have a reluctant spouse. And they just they just won't change. And you're trying to get you know do do something better for yourself. And you know they have they have meat in the house and and they go out to eat and you know they put you down even. I, I know this would be crazy. Why would you marry that person, right? But this does happen. And uh, I think that you know having that support really pushes you over the edge. Having that support along with the ability to choose vegan options out there that are available and to actually cook some of these foods. Um, is they, they both go hand in hand, and, and it depends on your personality which one's going to be more important. Mm. It's, it's funny that you bring up that particular scenario because I have on my desk at this moment a book by Ellen Jaffe Jones called Kitchen Divided. Ah. With, with a foreword by Neil Barnard from ah, look at PC, that. PCRM. And, you know, she's talking about that that household where one one person is vegan and the other is not and i think she's talking about her own life in fact oh um, really and so i'm i'm going to be interviewing her i think next week about you know s- strategies one of the things that you know when you talked about like you know being preachy and trying to get people to change i think there's a big divide in the vegan community uh, certainly around you know ethical veganisms which people who come to yeah. it from an animal rights perspective it's very hard for them to say three words without putting down people who aren't vegan you know even if it's yeah. very subtle like oh would you like to come over for a cruelty free meal yeah <laughs> you know? i i know i knew i do know this um <laughs> I, I don't I, uh, uh, I don't have much to say. It's just it's it's uh, I understand both sides of the coin, um, and um, 
I just, you know, I, I work with, with people who, if I can just get a, a little bit of a change to occur, I'm happy. And I think that, you know, coming at this from a clinical side, um, it's easy for me to say, you know, yeah, reduce your meat consumption, that's good. But I understand how other people who are really doing it for ethical reasons, that wouldn't be acceptable. But I have to come back to my own personal life and my own um, situations on what happened. And the more the more I kind of, you know, went back and, and stopped being preachy and stopped worrying so much um, about the welfare of animals, I know that sounds, that sounds weird, I, I do have well. I do have a lot of care and respect for animals, but the less I, I kind of focused on that angle and just focused on, you know, hey, I'm doing this for my health and for humans, and I really want to help people reverse their diabetes or, or what, what have you, then <laughs> I get this wave of vegans flocking in because all of a sudden they're not pressured into doing something. I mean, uh, everybody experiences that as a kid. Your mom tells you not to do something, and you're going to go do it. Um, it's the same thing with diet. It's no different. So, so... As a dietitian, I stop telling people what to eat. I tell them what I eat, I tell them some of the research, and then I let them make up their own minds. Right. So, and, you know. And, and you're finding that uh, you're, you're catching more flies with the, the vegan equivalent of honey. <laughs> Howard, I'm catching so many. It's, it's crazy. That's awesome. So, yeah, so it, it, it's great. And it's from this approach. It's from taking a step back. Um, so I would encourage all those who are really big animal welfare um, welfareist or I don't even know if that's a word, but uh, abolitionist I think is what I'm looking for here. And I, I actually didn't know about this when I when I started this diet. I did it strictly for selfish reasons, just for myself and for my own health because I had allergies. But I started to learn more about you know how these animals are raised and treated, and it wasn't the most it wasn't the best condition. So um, yeah, yeah, I'm 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 right there when I look at uh, you know without without an ethical consideration when I look at the way the animals that are supposed to become my food are treated mm-hmm. um, chemically, hormonally, um, you know, from purely selfish reasons, I would not want to go near that stuff. Yeah. To, to say nothing of the purely selfish motivation to have a planet that I can, you know, breathe the air of and drink the water of. Yeah. So, so I think selfishness can go a long way before before we have to get ethical. True. True. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so I don't want to leave this conversation on an, on an upbeat note because that's not my style. So I know you've done some work around food contamination. Oh no. Yeah. You don't, you uh, don't yeah. want to go there. No, let's go there. Let's get so, dirty with it because it's dirty. Okay. Um, to, what, to scare the hell out of us. What's the, all worst, right. what's the worst thing you've you've uncovered? Well, I think most of your viewers might know this. I'm just kind of being biased on uh, on that notion, but um, there is feces in meat, and I'm not the first to report this. The USDA, you know, has reports on this as well. So what I did, I, I literally, and and all the um, all the well, let me let me tell you what I did. I went to um, maybe ten cities. I went to Little Rock, Arkansas. I went to um, Montgomery, Alabama. I went to uh, here, Washington, D.C., went to places out in California, and I went to uh, Buffalo, New York. I went to all these places, and I went to the major retail grocery stores, and I bought chicken. Yep, I bought chicken. I bought probably 500 pounds of it, okay, over the course of the last two years. And every time I bought a sample, I labeled it, and I sent that to a lab in Chicago, and they tested that sample for generic E. coli, not the one that you're going to eat and you're going to die, you know, in the next 24 hours, but generic E. coli. 
the reason why we tested for generic E. coli is because, and tell me if I'm wrong, any of the microbiologists out there, it is the best indicator of fecal contamination that we have. So I sent all these samples out one by one. Um, it was Tyson chicken. It was Purdue chicken. It was even uh, organic chicken because what's not better than skinless, boneless, you know, low-fat, you know, 99.999% chicken breast, right? That's what everybody's eating. Well, I, I even tested that too, Howard, and that also had poop on it. So uh, anybody can go to look at our, our findings. It's at pcrm.org, and they can type in, you know, chicken study or fecal contamination. And so the, the point I'm getting at is all the samples tested, half of them came back positive on average. And some of them had levels that are, that are so high, um, even the USDA wouldn't allow that into the food supply. So it, it, was, a, it was a really disgusting project. And, uh, uh, you know, buying chicken, I haven't done in so long. So, you know, it, it was kind of gross. And you look, at, you look inside the packages and, and you would see little floaties. And the floaties could be little, you know, you know, puffs of, of fat or, or, or specks of blood. I don't know what it was, but I took pictures of all this stuff and uh, and we sent it to the lab, and it came back positive for for generic E. coli. Okay. So so I have to ask, um, why doesn't the government do this? If if all if, if all it takes is a, a a postage stamp and a credit card to buy chicken, you know, it was, why do you have to do this? Why why isn't the government uh, looking out for our interests here? Um, they are. They're looking at about one out of every 22,000 samples, okay? So let's do the math on that. There's about, uh, let's say, 9 billion chickens slaughtered a year. Uh, if you do the math on that, that comes out to about, uh, like, let's say 400, just to be safe, about 400,000 uh, chickens that the USDA does test. And if they find levels that are, that are higher than a certain amount, they do throw the chicken out. But the testing is very spotty, and, and they don't do it all the time. So you ask, why isn't the government doing this? Well, it costs money, one. And two, probably because they don't want the consumer to know that they're eating a pile of uh, fecal matter in their food. So uh, everybody's up in arms in this, uh, with this issue, even chicken eaters. And so right now there's a petition being held against the USDA trying to get uh, more workers to actually you know, cover these poultry plants and do better testing. I hope now, I hope it happens, but I, you know I I am I am not hopeful yeah. that the USDA is going to implement any of these significant changes. Yeah. So I think about the the, the ten o'clock news culture of you know warning and this could happen and that could happen. I'm wondering how much press you got for for this effort. Did you feel like it was it was covered fairly? If it was hyped or it was suppressed or so, something else. We got some good coverage, uh, some NPR affiliates and some coverage up in Buffalo, New York, where we really made a big push. Um, but, I, I, you know, it, it's, it's hard to say because I, I don't work in communications. I just do a lot of the interviews for this, for these. And um, I, I think we had a good share. Now, to tell you, was our campaign effective? Are people eating less chicken? Um, I want to say yes, but there wasn't any, um, you know, surveys in place, and I don't even know how you would do that uh, to, to actually know if people are eating less chicken. But I did survey a bunch of folks on the streets of Buffalo, about 300 of them, and just asked them, hey, did you know that there was you know, feces in your chicken? 
and and a lot of them did not know. A lot of them thought that because we gave them multiple choice question, they could answer either feces, feathers, sand, or uh, plastic. Most of them said plastic. So a lot of people didn't know. And when we resurveyed them after we gave our campaign in Buffalo, a lot of folks did know that that you know so so again it was more of a, just an awareness campaign and uh maybe we didn't get you know the press we deserved but uh we got a fair number and uh we were happy with it well that's that's good because i mean i think from from my perspective it's not that hard to tell when you're being you know stonewalled <laughs> yeah so if you didn't feel it you probably uh you probably got some got some good coverage no, yeah, I think we did get good coverage. And now, you know, other people are doing this work for us. So, you know, uh, Dr. Greger has a great website called nutritionfacts.org, and he, he talks about some of the groundbreaking studies that are that are in the field of research. And, uh, you know, check him out. And, he, and he's got a lot that are talking about some of the, the foodborne illnesses that are coming from chicken products. And, you know, if there's one meat out there that could be the filthiest on this planet, I would say it's chicken. So if there's one thing you could give up today and you're still eating animal products, let the chicken go, at least for a day. <laughs> right? Yeah. We're starting slow. <laughs> right. So just out of curiosity, so, you know, poop in our food, it sounds gross. Um, is it bad for us? It can be. Generic E. coli, if you test it and you have a high number, that can be an indicator that there's other bacteria in that sample that could be highly pathogenic. Um, foodborne illness is not very well tracked. So let's say somebody gets sick, they get the flu, or they come down with a headache or, or whatever. They don't go to the, you know, I'm not going to call the CDC and report my, my 24-hour flu. Um, you know, it's basically foodborne illness that goes undetected. So a lot of it we just don't know. So to answer your question, I would think, yeah, it can be harmful. But typically, it's not. We have bacteria in our gut right now. We're, the reason we're alive is because of bacteria. So it is, a, you know, and you're a gardener just like me, so we know how important bacteria is and how important our soil is. But uh, but coming from, you know, the inside of an animal and, and that type of, of uh, feces, that's not one I want. And that's not one that I want my children to eat or, or anybody to eat for that matter. Sure. Um, so in, uh, did, were there any uh, brands that, you know, I, I know you don't want to sort of... Uh, advertise any brand of animal products but for for those who are listening who 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 are not going to give up chicken is there a safe um type you know organic free range uh, natural um, kosher halal is there anything you'd recommend to to you know reduce the odds to zero of contaminants or to lower them considerably um you know i uh I'm not going to say I wish there was, but you know, there's really not. the 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 testing was was just so spotty that, you know, this is what's interesting. If you think about it, what what is organic chicken? It's 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 chicken that has been raised without antibiotics. So what's an antibiotic? You're you're kills, avoiding kills a type bacteria. of bacteria. Kills bacteria. So we actually, <laughs> this might really gross people out. We found more bacteria on uh, the products that were organic. <laughs> which would make sense. So, so th- there's not a, a brand out there that I can say with 100% confidence um, that somebody could eat. Um, and if I say any more, you, you might get me fi- fired, Howard. But uh, I think that <laughs> I, it, there's just there's just no brand out there that's safe. I think I think this. Um, aside from PCRM, I think that as a as a as a as a 
person who lives in the United States and who promotes uh, a good, healthy diet, um, a vegan diet, I would say that if um, you know, if people out there, your listeners out there, do eat meat, um, I would really, you know, I'm not for uh, humane slaughter or or grass-fed beef or this or that. I think they're just fancy words to put on on these on these um, chicken labels or, or beef labels to make the consumer feel better. But um, I do think that it it's you know quote unquote better to to uh, consume animals if if you if that's where you're at right now and that's what you're doing that have have lived longer lives and have not been pumped full of hormones and antibiotics or just living in a cage. But um, but for the viewers who are eating, know that the animal does eventually get slaughtered, and so there's really no winning. And even if you're eating organic, you're still getting all the cholesterol and saturated fat and and everything like that. Um, so. So no, no is the answer to your question, Howard. There's okay. no safe brand. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well then I, ha- I yeah. have I have one of my teaser bullets for for this talk, which is the the most dangerous food in the American diet. Ooh. So we'll, we'll leave it at that, and people will have to listen to uh, to an hour of us to get the answer. So. All right, sounds <laughs> so, good. So, so the marketer in me is very happy with your answer. Great, great. Cool. So I don't want to take up any more of your time. Is there anything that you want to add or you wish I'd asked that uh, that I haven't? Um, I just want to add that regardless of where anybody's at with their diet, adding plants is the best thing you can do. Even if you're already vegan, just add more of the whole foods into your diet and you will feel better. Um, that could be a plum or, or some broccoli. Um, and also get out there and grow your own food. You know, it's amazing growing your own food. You might not be great at it right away, and it might come out a little not as expected, but you're creating life, and that's a, a really powerful thing. So so two points. Go grow your own food. Don't care what you're growing. Hopefully it's a plant. And, and add more plants to your already existing diet. Awesome. Awesome. So I'd like to, I'd like to finish by just um, letting people know where they can find out more about you, about PCRM. I know there's a 21-day vegan kickstart that's very popular. There's some uh, continuing medical education courses. Where where do people go from here? Uh, PCRM.org. And from there, you can navigate through our site for hours on end. We have literature. We have fact sheets. We have, um, you know, anything that you can imagine. If you're a dietitian or a doctor or a nurse, we do give free, yes, free continuing medical education credits. You can earn up to 20 of them on our website. So another great service that we provide. Awesome. Well, Joseph Gonzalez, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been really interesting. Anytime. Take care. Bye-bye now.